0: I'm ready to get into this message with you today. If you've got your Bibles, uh, go with me to Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin there. And let me help you out a little bit if you're a parent who's got a kid in kids' church this morning. uh, You want to pay attention to this portion of scripture because uh, when you ask your kids what they learned this morning, this is what they're going to tell you. So you can get a little preview and uh, feel like you know what you're talking about a little bit better on the ride home today. Before we get into that text, uh, let me just kind of refresh your mind of a visual that I shared back at the beginning of the year as we we're bringing in this series, The Great Investment, uh, to a close today. The picture that I gave was of the two uh, gauges on your dashboard, one being the speedometer that tells you how fast you're going, and the other gauge being the tachometer That's the one that it doesn't tell you how fast you get from point A to point B, but it communicates how hard or how fast your engine is working to get you from point A to point B. It's it's the RPMs, the rotations per minute. And, And within that analogy, what I wanted you to understand is that every one of us are going somewhere. God wants us to accelerate this year in our purpose for him. But it's not just about getting somewhere. it's about getting there better. It's about being uh, more effective and efficient. And in order to do that, we need to learn how to shift. Have you ever kept it in first gear for too long? Anybody knows how to drive a standard operation? You, you know that when that engine starts revving and, and the RPMs start redlining, your car is screaming at you, "Hey, you need to shift!" And I want to tell you, some of us in our spirit life are at that place where the warning signs are indicating something needs to shift because I'm not reaching my maximum potential to get where God wants me to go. And so the RPMs, what we've said is that they stand for relational, physical, mental, and spiritual components of our lives. The RPMs, and don't forget the S because the spiritual is important. God wants to help us to shift in these areas of our lives so that we can meet uh, and maximize our potential. Now, in saying all that, this whole series this month, The Great Investment, has been about the physical component of our life. We're talking about primarily money and we're going to talk about some more things than that today. But what we need to understand is that the physical world, our physical life, is is everything that we own and things that want to own us. It's the job, it's the money, it's the finances, it's your career, it's your family, it's all of these relational uh, or these physical elements of life that God wants to help us to make adjustments. And my heart for you today is that That you would be able to hear something of what God has given me and that you would make a course correction, that you would make a shift in your heart and life to better align yourself with what God wants for you and what God has for you. Now if you're a note taker, I want you to begin with this thought and this is really going to carry us through the message today and the thought is this, living on mission demands living with margin. (coughs) Think about that for a second as we look into Luke 10 Living on mission demands Living with margin. This is a very familiar story. In fact It's maybe the most popular parable of all the teachings that jesus gave It's the parable of the good samaritan And the the motivation for this story was a man who the bible describes as an expert of the law an expert of the law comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus essentially says, well, you're the expert. What does the law say? And the man gives the perfect response. He says, the, Lord says, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, well, you've answered correctly. Do that and you'll have eternal life. But the man didn't come to Jesus because he didn't know the law. He came to Jesus looking for a loophole. Essentially, what he wanted to know is, what's the minimum effort required to still get in? And so he poses a question. He says, well, who is my neighbor? Really, what he was saying is, not who should I love, but who do I not have to love? And I can still get in to the kingdom of heaven. And so from that question, Jesus begins to tell the parable of the good Samaritan. I want to just look at a few verses in the story. Beginning in verse 30 of Luke 10. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jericho to Jerusalem when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side verse 33 but a samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him he took pity on him the bible goes on to tell us the man bandaged his wounds He put him on his own donkey and he carried him to an inn where he paid the innkeeper to take care of the man, even saying, look, if it costs more than what I've given you, when I come back, I'll make up the difference. And Jesus tells this incredible story to communicate what it really looks like to love your neighbor. Now, that's all the story we get, but if I can just embellish for a moment. Don't you believe that if Jesus had given us more of the priest's excuse and more of the Levite's excuse for going around the man and not stopping to help him, how many of you know they would have had a good excuse? I mean, not valid, but a good one. They would have said, you know, maybe, you know, I spent all the money I had in Jerusalem. I, I can't help this man today. I'm broke. Or maybe they would have said, I have an important meeting that I have to get to in Jericho. I can't stop. I don't know what they would have said, but no doubt they would have given a rational sounding reason for not stopping to help the man who is in need. And the point that Jesus is making in this story is those who do the will of God are those who make room for God to use them. See, the reason God used the Samaritan, certainly not because he was more spiritual or more biblically grounded. I mean, the priest and the Levite are the upper echelon of faith in this context. And yet, it's the man who just made room for God to be able to use him that God did use. Now, making room requires something of us. Making room in our lives for God to use us requires that we adjust our physical life. If you're going to live on mission, you have to live with margin. There's a condition that John Ortberg coined the phrase that I think many of us have today. It's called hurried sickness. Yeah, I haven't even defined it yet, but how many of you know you've got it? <laughs> haven't even defined it. Yeah, hurry sickness. That's definitely something I have. Let me tell you what he writes about hurry sickness. He says, love and hurry. Are fundamentally incompatible love always takes time and time is the one thing that hurried people don't have we've all been there we've all offered the same excuses We've all gone around the opportunities that were presented in the path. If you're going to live on mission for God, you have to live with margin. And I'm talking about making some course corrections in every area of our life so that we can invest in what matters most. Have you ever noticed when when you read the Gospels how much of Jesus' ministry happened along the way? I mean, we just read the priest and the Levite came along the same path and went around, but go with me if you have your Bible to Matthew chapter 8. I just want to show you a few verses here to, to emphasize this thought that not everything Jesus did in the ministry was on his calendar. It wasn't on the day's agenda, but it was in the process of coming along the path. We're not going to dive into any of these stories. I I just want to do a flyover, like the 30,000-foot elevation level. Let's just look at what's happening in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 8.1 says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Opportunity for ministry. Kneeling before Jesus. Look down at verse 5. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Of course, if you know the story, in both of those situations, Jesus healed the leper and Jesus sent his word to heal the centurion's servant. Then look at verse 14, Matthew 8. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Again, not the reason he came in the house, but when he got there, it's what he found. Skip down to verse 28. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. And so, again, Jesus is confronted with an opportunity for ministry. And what an awesome story is he sends the devils out of those men. And the devils go into a herd of pigs. And the herd of pigs run into the ocean. And they drown themselves in the sea. And the Bible says because of that, all the people of the town came out to see Jesus. They said, we don't want you to stick around anymore. You killed our pigs. And so chapter 9 begins. Jesus has to change his plans one more time. Verse 1, chapter 9. Jesus stepped into the boat, crossed over, and he came to his own town. Some men brought him a paralyzed man. Here's this man being brought to Jesus, an opportunity for ministry. Look at verse 9. As Jesus went out from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, this is Matthew who wrote the gospel. I love this verse because Matthew could have written it differently. I mean, this is his cameo moment in the story. He's writing it. He could have said, and then one day, Jesus came and found me. But he writes himself into the narrative as a byline. As a side note, and there's something that I think he wants us to understand as we see Jesus moving from place to place, these, these events are not on his eye calendar, okay? These events, he's not getting alerts and reminders that he's got to go over here and do this and do that. No, these are things that happen in the margin. Can I tell you today, ministry happens in the margin. And if you want to live on mission for God, you have to live with margin in your life. You can't be driven by the sickness of hurry. Or you'll always be the man or the woman that walks around on the other side of the road. Jesus made himself available in each and every one of these moments. And I want to appeal to you today, on a scope that's grander than just your finances, that living on mission requires living With margin. And there's three things that God has given you. He's given me, he's given all of us. Three things that we can invest, that we must invest time, talent, and treasure. Now, we've spent the last two Sundays talking about that third category, treasure. So let me just make a few comments about that, and then we'll move into the other two. Your money. Is your means for getting everything that you need and for getting everything that you want. Now, that's not spiritual, that's just life. How many of you know that that's just the truth? Your money is your means for everything that you want and everything that you need. But if you can understand this analogy for a moment, your money represents your life. It represents the sweat equity that you put in to get that money. It represents the time away from your family. It represents you. And so everything that you spend your money on, everything that you invest in, you're giving a little piece of yourself to. So if that's true, and I believe it is, that everything I spend my money on, I'm giving a piece of myself to. I'm putting value on it. If that's true, then for every Christian, for every follower of Christ, it ought to also be true that we prioritize giving the first and the best part of us to God. That's why last Sunday, we gave a whole week of this series to talking about God's word about tithing. Because tithe equals the first 10%. That's what tithe means. The first 10%. And we ought to be people, if we love God, if He saved us, if He gave us life, if our eternity is secured in Him, then we ought to be a people that give back to God first. Can somebody say amen? You know how Jesus said it in Matthew 6.21. We've looked at this verse every week of this series, but I want you to see it again. Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, let me give you a word of grace today. First of all, let me say this to the church family. If you weren't here last weekend and, and you're, this is your church home, I want to I ask you, go back and listen to last Sunday's message on the website or on Facebook. Go back and listen to that word because it is a word for all of us. And it was a word specifically about our finances but let me, let me give you some, some grace in this moment because I realize that sometimes you can hear a word that encourages you to do something very specific, but you, because of previous decisions or because of unforeseen circumstances, you feel like, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I, I can't obey that word. I'd like to, but you're talking about giving, and the reality is I got more bills to pay than I have money coming in. So let me give you just a word of encouragement today on that note. Start with something. But start now. Start now. When it comes to walking in obedience, when it comes to walking by faith, ask God to give you wisdom to know what to do. You know, I prayed that prayer again this last week. God, give me wisdom. You know what I did? I I refinanced the loan on my car. I'm going to save $2,800 over the course of paying off that loan. So you can be going, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know. And God can give you wisdom. God can tell you what you need to do. I want to encourage you. Ask God for wisdom. Pray about it. And, and trust God in the area of your finances. But take a step of faith. And, and don't just say, okay, well, I'm going I'm to give an offering. No, you miss the blessing if you just give an offering that's unaccounted for. Give first to God. Look at your finances. Say, God, you know, I, I, boy, I couldn't do 10%. Start somewhere. Did you know the average American? This isn't this isn't uh, Christianity. This is just morality. The average American gives six percent of their finances to charity. So th- that's just that's just morality. That's just the fingerprint of God on the hearts of humanity. That we would be generous with our with our finances. So start somewhere and say, God, I'm going to be intentional about giving to you. First, I'm going to sow into the kingdom of God out of my treasure. And can I say why it's so important that you do it now and not later? Because the path to freedom is paved with generosity. It really is. See, the lie from the enemy is this. The lie from the enemy is to tell you that if I had more, I'd give more. And until I have more, I can't give. But that's just simply not true. Again, not, not talking biblically here. Let me just speak about American culture. Studies have been done time and time again to show that lower income families in America are more generous with their finances than the highest level of society. Now, now don't get me wrong. The highest level of society accounts for 60 to 70 percent of the charity that's given because of the size of their giving. But God never looks at the size of the gift, He looks at what's left in your hand after you've given. That's why the tithe is 10%, it's not a monetary value. And when you look at the giving in America, those with lower income give a greater percentage of that income than those who have more. And yet the enemy would have us to believe that if I have more, I'll give more. It's not true. The pathway to freedom is paved with generosity. When when you make up your mind to say, God, I'm trusting you with my finances and I'm prioritizing them around your heart and so I'm giving to God, First, you know, our kids, as we mentioned earlier, are are at the breakaway weekend, and they're they're going to different stations, and they're meeting missionaries, and they're learning about world cultures, and their hearts are going to be ignited this weekend with a passion for missions, a passion to create margin, be it in their little $10 allowance a week or or their lemonade stand or however they do it. They're going to come back, and they're going to get their little buddy barrel, This little yellow barrel. And they're going to receive the missions challenge for the Boys and Girls Missionary Challenge, BGMC. And and I said in week one of this series, my faith is geared that God is going to help us to double our missions giving this year. And you know what? I believe that our kids are going to be a part of that. Our kids are going to be a part of it. They're going to be inspired and motivated to give towards God. And they should be. We should train them while they're young to prioritize God's work through our resources. I want to tell you today, for some of us, the most significant spiritual decision you could make, spiritual decision that you could make this year is to create a budget and get out of debt. I really believe that. It doesn't sound spiritual, but it probably won't feel spiritual either, (laughs) But for some of us, it's the most spiritual discipline that we could do. Why? Because when it comes to your treasure, you don't have any margin. And if you don't have any margin, you can't live on mission. Your heart can be stirred. You can feel compelled. But your head will hang low. And your hands will reach into empty pockets. And you'll say, if I had, I would. But I don't. Marginal living is required for missional living. Let me tell you about the second one. Talked about treasure. Let me talk about talent for a minute. Do me a favor. You guys are really quiet. Just look at the person next to you and tell them you are talented. Come on. You didn't even convince them. Now they're less convinced. You're talented. Come on. When's the last time somebody actually told you that? I hope it hasn't been too long. You are. You're talented. But can I, can I go even one more? You are gifted. You're gifted. You say, How do you know that? Because the Bible communicates. If you're saved, if you've accepted Jesus into your heart, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit gives a gift, personally, custom tailored, and designed for you. He gives a gift to you. To use, I want to show you in the scriptures 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. It says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. My gift might be different than yours. Your gift is different from someone else's. But the Holy Spirit is the one who distributes the gifts. Look down at verse 6, same chapter. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God At work. Can I tell you, that's why we need everybody using their gifting. Because the more people use their gifting, different giftings, working in different ways, we get a bigger revelation of God. Because it's the same God working through every one of us. Look at the next verse. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. When you exercise your gift, when you use the talent that God has given you, to use. The Bible says that it's, a demon, it's for the common good. It's, listen, you're holding out on blessing the rest of us because you're not convinced that God has gifted you. Your gift is for our common good. I love 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. One of my favorite verses, it says, each of you should use whatever gift you have been given. It doesn't say, for those of you that were special enough to get a gift from God, you should use it. No, look at it. It says, each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. God has a unique grace on your life to do certain things well. When I try to do what you do well, I fail. But there's a unique grace grace on your life, God's grace in its various forms. You've got to use the gifts and the abilities that God has given you because he's enabled you to do something. And when you give your talent back to God in service, you are honoring God in what you do. That's why as, as a church, one of our core behaviors is a commitment to excellence. It's a core behavior for us. In other words, it's one of those things that when people come into this house, whether they've been here for years or they come for the first time, we want them to not only know what we believe, we want them to see how we behave. We want them to pick up on the culture and the DNA of this church and say, boy, these people do things really well. I had a friend recently attended our church. And I said, hey, I want your raw feedback, man. I mean, give it to me straight. What can we do better? You go, he goes to a lot of different churches, and I said, how can we improve? And, and, and I knew what he meant when he said this, but he said, you know what? Honestly, for the size church you are, it shouldn't be that good. <laughs> and I know what he was saying. In his own words, he was saying, you know what I picked up in the culture of your church? Excellent." a desire to do things well. Most churches that size don't do things that well, but I could tell there was detail with the crew in the sound booth. I could tell there was detail with the people serving at the door or serving the coffee. You were very attentive. Let me tell you how we've said it in this church. This is our passionate commitment. We turn from minimal expectations, chase excellence in everything we do, and challenge those we lead to give their best work for God's kingdom. I heard someone uh, speaking on a similar topic this last week and I shared this with our staff in our meeting. They they said it so well and I love this. They just said, we battle mediocrity. That's what you ought to do. Whether you're in ministry at the church, whether you're a teacher, whether you work at the grocery store, Or if you're a tradesman or tradeswoman, you ought to battle mediocrity. Why? Because the Bible says in Colossians 3.17, whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. That That ought to be our passion. Whatever your hand finds to do, whether in word or deed. We do it for God because he's given us talent. He's given us ability. He's given us the opportunity to invest that back for his glory. Yeah, I read recently that Justin the martyr wrote about the life of Christ 90 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And one of the things that fascinated me about his writing is, (coughs) is that he said, he wrote about Jesus' carpentry. You know, when we think about Jesus, we think about his his teaching, his miracles. We think about his ministry. But 90 years after his death and resurrection, Justin wrote about Jesus' carpentry, how he made things so beautifully, plows and and yokes, and, and then how he would use those things to illustrate some of his messages and some of his teachings. Something about that just amazed me about our Lord that he would be able to speak to governors and kings, that he would do miracles and and perform healings, and that he would die on a cross and raise from the grave and ascend in bodily form back up to heaven. And yet 90 years after all of that, people are impressed with his carpentry skills. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Jesus didn't wait until he was 30 years old And John baptized him in the Jordan before he began to honor God with his talent. That tells me that just as a young man in the carpentry shop, Jesus understood as an apprentice that whatever your hand finds to do, in word or in deed, do it all to the glory of God. Not just the teaching, not just the preaching or the miracles, certainly not just the, the worship and the Sunday morning experience. Everything your hand finds to do, do it to the glory of God. I'm preaching better than you're shouting, I gotta tell you. I love the way Martin Luther King said it. He said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should should sweep streets, even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He said, he, he probably said it with a little bit more flavor in his voice. He said, he should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. How many of you know that probably got a few, amen? You know, it's true. Whatever your hand finds to do, we should do to the glory of God. You have ability. And you have a gift. And here's the beautiful thing when you take your talent, your ability, and the gift that the Holy Spirit selected for you at the moment of your salvation, and you put those things together, you have an opportunity for ministry. An opportunity to be used by God in unique and powerful ways. I mean, you, you might you might just be a, a serviceman. That, that, that goes and, and you're a trade, you know, I, I think about Earl Winner who, who owns his own plumbing business. I, I love talking with Earl about work because it's, he, never, he never really talks to me about the plumbing job, which I appreciate. <laughs> That's not what he really cares to share with me. No, what, what he talks to me about are the people that he has the opportunity to pray for, the people that he rubs shoulders with. Just this week, we were talking and he said, man, it's been a good week. I was going to so-and-so's house and, and I knew they'd been dealing with some things. And so knowing that he was going to do a plumbing job at somebody who had a physical need in their life, when he left the house, he took a bottle of anointing oil with him. Why? Because his talent is plumbing, but his gift is faith. That's why I ask him to stand up here and, and pray for people that respond to the altars because he has a gift of faith. So he coupled his talent with his gift. Now there's an opportunity for ministry. I don't know what your talent is, but listen, ministry isn't something that we clock in to do when we volunteer for a a, a team at the church or that we go on a missions trip. Ministry is what happens when you walk in your gifting and you utilize your talent. Maybe maybe you're just a, you know, maybe you're a dental hygienist and, and you have the gift of mercy, Listen, if I'm sitting in the chair, I want a dental hygienist with the mercy gift. When I was a child, I sat in the dentist chair, and every time I didn't open my mouth, the lady would poke my tongue. And to this day, I blame her. I hate the dentist. That is not a mercy gift. You're you're punishing me. It's hard for a seven-year-old to control his crazy little tongue. I want somebody with a mercy gift. Or maybe, maybe you work in, in the grocery store, but you have the gift of hospitality, and your smile and your customer service makes the difference in somebody's life. Your talent and your gifting are an opportunity for ministry to thrive. We've got to invest our talent back. Let me tell you about the third one time. Now, time is the great equalizer, time is our most valuable, non replenishable resource. Every one of us, we have time, and none of us can figure out how to make more of it. You can develop your talents. You can make some more money. How many of you know you can't make more time? You want to know how valuable time is? You want to know how valuable a year is? It's been said, ask a student who failed a grade. You want to know how valuable a month is? Ask the mom who gave birth to a premature baby. It's been said, if you want to know the value of a week, ask the editor of the weekly newspaper. Or if you want to know the value of a day, ask a wage laborer who has kids to feed how valuable one day is. If you want to know the value of one hour, ask the lovers who are waiting to meet. You want to know the value of a minute? Ask the man who just missed the last train. If you want to know the value of a second Ask the one who just avoided a head-on collision. If you want to know the value of a millisecond, watch the Olympics. Right? I mean, come on. All this month, I've been so fascinated. I love the Olympics. And we've seen milliseconds be the difference between somebody going home with the gold and then someone else being completely knocked off the podium. Milliseconds. Time matters. We all know it to be true. It's valuable and none of us can make more of it. So what we have to do is we have to learn to manage our time. We have to learn how to take care of the time that we have. And let me say this to you today. Time management doesn't mean doing more. Time management means doing more of what matters most. It's about the priority of your heart and life we got to be careful that we don't confuse efficiency with effectiveness. Because if you do, you can spend all of your time, all of your energy trying to get more done, more done, more done, to be more efficient. And at the end of it all, you realize you haven't done anything of eternal significance. See, Jesus was very clear when he told his disciples and he told us in John chapter 15, verse 16. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might, <coughs> you might go and bear fruit. And then he emphasized fruit that will last. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm not just asking you to be efficient. I want you to be effective. I want you to produce something of eternal value. That's why I called you. That's why I gifted you. That's why I filled you with my spirit. So that you can do something that's going to last. Something that's going to matter. We have to schedule our values, what matters most to us. You know, for example, some somebody might say, I, I, lo- I love to read. I just never have time. You have to schedule your values. If you don't schedule your values, you're always going to live frustrated. You're, you're always going to be frustrated with yourself. You have to schedule what matters Most to you. I love the way Louis Giglio talks about this topic. He said, if you're going to say yes to anything, it means at the same time you have to say less to something else. Isn't that true? And so, what we have to do is we have to make sure that the yes is worth the less. For example, your boss tells you, Hey, we've got some extra overtime. Do you want the overtime? Wow, do I want the extra money? Am I physically capable? Yes, yes. Do I have time? Yes, yes. But what am I having to say less to? Are we going to be able to have the family time that we wanted this weekend? No. Am I going to be able to attend church with my family? No. You have to know if the yes is worth the less. And in every area of our lives, we answer that same question. It's amazing to me. You know, how many people would say, wow, you know, I I just, I wish I had more time to pray. I wish I had more time to read my Bible. I wish I had more time for my family. I wish I had more time to give to the church. I wish, I wish, I wish. You can't make more time. Neither can I. But God asks us to be good stewards of our time, of our talent, and of our treasure. He owns it all, I own nothing. I'm a manager of everything. I wanna give you one more verse today. And I want this verse to, to be the lens that you look through because what we've been talking about in the great investment is giving my life to what matters, producing fruit that will last. Listen, your time, your talent, your treasure, that's God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift to God. And if we're going to invest ourselves into what God has for us, if we're going to do the things that God's called us to do, then we have to have the right perspective of his goodness. We have to know with confidence that he's going to be faithful to meet our needs. Because isn't that why we hold back? Isn't that why we we hedge our bets? Isn't that why we don't go all in? Because we're just not really sure how it's going to work out. So I want to give you a verse out of Philippians chapter 4. Verse 19, and I want this verse to to frame your thinking. Because when it comes to God's economy, listen, it's not about bulls and bears. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has more than enough to meet your need. Look at this verse. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Can we all just say that verse together out loud? Come on, let's read it out loud. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you four things out of this verse you're looking at. Four things you need to know. You're always going to have enough if, number one, God is your God. I love Paul said, my God shall meet all your needs. In other words, I can't speak for all the other gods out there that people want to serve, but my God will meet your needs. Can I tell you who your God is? He's the God that revealed himself as the El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. He's the God who spoke into nothing and created something. He's God Elohim, the creator God, who took dirt and made man. How can that God ever not have enough? He's the creator. He has enough to meet your needs. See, the credibility of a promise depends on who makes it. I mean, God said he would meet your needs. My God. Secondly, you'll always have enough if God is your supply. He said, my God will meet your needs. In other words, He'll meet you at the point of your need. God is the source, but He's also the resource. God can meet you at your point of need. I, I had to send a package a couple weeks ago to somebody on the other side of the country, and and I had already contacted them. It was Saturday, and I said you'll have it Tuesday. So I go to package everything up, and I realize the box that I have is not near big enough. So. I called Steve Malus to see if he had any boxes down in his pole barn. And so I run down to Steve's house. I pick up a bigger box. I I get back to my house. I package the whole thing up. I get it taped up. I get to the post office at 11.45. They close at 12. And and I pay for it. I I get it metered, and and they're ready to send it off. And I'm going, good, it's going to get there by Tuesday. I go home, 3 o'clock that afternoon. I find an unstamped letter in my mailbox from the local post office. It's an apology saying, we charged you the wrong amount for your package. You're gonna have to come in on Monday when we open so that you can pay the difference and we'll ship it out. Now, why do I tell you that? Because if I'm your source, (laughs) if you're counting on me, even with my good intentions, my best efforts and Steve's help, It still might get hung up at the post office. But if God is your source, I'm gonna tell you, nothing can hinder the provision of our heavenly father. God knows what you need and he knows how to get the resources to you at the place that you need them. Let me tell you the third thing about this verse. And my God will meet all of your needs. All of your needs. Can we just sit right there a moment? Let me tell you, if God is your supply, he'll meet every need. And he'll meet your greatest need. And I can just tell you, in case you don't know already, the greatest need that you have, greatest need that I have, is forgiveness. It's forgiveness of our sins. It's like Jesus when he looked at the paralytic laying on the mat. His issue was obvious to everybody in the room. The man can't walk. Jesus looked at him and he saw his greatest need first. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. God, look, you might think you know what your need is, but God knows your greatest need. We need forgiveness of our sin. We need fellowship with God. And God gives us that opportunity through Christ to have fellowship with God. I love the way St. Augustine said it. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. God knows that there's an empty space, a God-shaped hole in every one of us, and only he can fill it. He wants to meet your need for fellowship with God. He wants to meet your need for protection, even as we prayed it earlier today over our kids. They're getting ready to leave from Carlisle. They got about an hour drive from here. Listen, there's nothing they can do about the the person who's about to have a blowout and they're tired. There's nothing that that, that we can do to protect our kids. if, If some truck driver's keeping two sets of books and he's been driving all weekend, there's nothing we can do about the person that might veer into our lane of traffic. But what we can do is we can know that the sufficiency of God is to protect his people. God gives us what we need even the testing. That's right. God knows you need tests. I wish it weren't true, but I can't find any other way that perseverance is developed in scriptures outside of a test. The testing of our faith produces perseverance. The Bible says he disciplines those that he loves. Let me tell you one more thing about this verse. Put that verse back up there for me, Tyler. It says that he'll meet all of our needs according to the riches of his glory. Think about that. That's how God measures his supply. Not based on your resources, not based on your income, not based on your ability. God measures out his resources based on his glory. Can I tell you how big that is? The Bible says the glory of God covers the earth even as the waters cover the sea. The glory of God reaches to the highest Heavens, what is he saying? He's saying God's resources are absolutely limitless. He will meet your need according to the riches of His glory. Let me end by telling you a story today. There was a woman, a French woman, years ago. When she was a child, she learned how to make little prayer boxes. She would, she would write a scripture on a tiny little scroll, and then she would roll that scroll up, and she would place it in the box, and after she got about 40 or 50 of them, she'd have a complete set of those little prayer boxes, and as a child, she was taught to, to go every day and open the box and unroll a promise from God. Well, as the years went by, she kind of forgot about the prayer box, and World War II ensued, and she became depressed. She became discouraged with life, and then one day she remembered the little prayer box. She went back to the drawer to find it, and as she went, she prayed a prayer. She said, Lord, you know how depressed I am. You know I need a word of encouragement. Is there any promise in here somewhere that could help me? And as she held the box, she went over the window where there was better light to read. And as she went that way, she tripped on the rug and the box opened and all the promises fell out. And in that moment, God spoke to her heart and she broke down in tears. And she began to cry at the new revelation and she prayed a different prayer. She said, Lord, how foolish I have been to ask you for one promise when there are so many glorious promises in your word. Can I tell you today, don't limit your faith based on what you can see. God's promises are limitless. He will meet your every need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I want to ask you to stand to your feet with me all over this room. We need to get this word in our hearts and in our lives, so much so that it shifts our perspective from living life with clenched fists to living life with an open hand, knowing that God is going to meet and supply our every need to fulfill his purpose in our lives. That's the plan of God for you and for me, that we would invest our time, our talent, and our treasure into his kingdom purposes, God wants to help us to get there. He wants to give you wisdom to know how to get there. I want us to say this verse together one more time before we pray. We're going to say it out loud. Everyone say it with me. Philippians 4:19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Father, today we grab a hold of this promise by faith. God today... We make a fresh commitment as your people to live our lives in light of your provision and not in light of our lack. We want to live our lives in light of your provision and not in light of what's been spoken over us. God, you've given us everything we need to live godly in Christ Jesus. We are fully equipped. We have enough time. We have enough talent. And we have enough treasure. If we'll shift our thinking, God, you'll cause us to to grow. You'll cause us to thrive. You'll cause us to be fruitful. With fruit that lasts, God, equip your church for your kingdom purposes. Right where you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to just invite you, would you pray a prayer of surrender to God in your own words? Maybe it's just one of these areas that we've talked about today. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you about scheduling your values, and maybe the Holy Spirit's impressed upon you that the yes that you're saying is not worth the less. The things that really matter are the things that you've cut out of your life, and He wants you to adjust your schedule this week. Maybe for some of you, it's it's the lie from the enemy about your talents. Your gifting, feeling like you're not enough, that somebody else is more qualified, and you continue to go around on the other side of the road when God keeps putting the need in your path. Why don't you pray a prayer of surrender in your own words? Say, God, I give you, I give you my talents. God, I believe that what I have plus your gifting is enough to be used by you. So, God, I, I give. I give myself to you. Maybe you're here today and the Spirit is speaking to you about your treasure. In the area of your finances. Priorities of your spending have not reflected the priority of your faith. But today you hear the Spirit of God saying, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added if God's speaking to you about the priorities of your treasure, pray a prayer of surrender right now. God, what can we do but lay our lives down before you again? You're the author of life. Every good and perfect gift, it comes from you. All that we have was yours. We own nothing. We're managers of everything. And one day God will stand before you and our heart's desire is that you would say, well done good and faithful servant. God, find us faithful today from this moment forward. Free us from past failures. Forgive us of sin and empower us by your spirit to be faithful from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.